coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. And so, you know, we, Belinda's work is about, you know, showing the role of the Adventist church, who are the second biggest educator in the world in manipulating our dietary guidelines. Now, they, they effectively started the cereal industry, the soy industry, the Western soy industry, and the meat, the alternate meat industry. Now, they, mm. But, and they've been manipulating dietary guidelines. What's really interesting is they're very proud of it. So if you go, it's not, it's not as though it's hidden. People go, oh, you can't say that. I go, actually, no, they're actually saying, if you go and have a listen to them and find their papers and what they're talking about and where they are in the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the Dietary Guidelines Committees, they've been working really, really hard to do exactly what they're doing, which is to turn us into vegans. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed author, orthopedic surgeon, and low-carb, high-fat, healthy eating advocate, Dr. Gary Fetke. We discussed the importance of eating seasonally, the issue with polyunsaturated fats, advantages of ketosis, Dr. Fecky's basics of weight loss, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. This was a great interview with Dr. Fecky. I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a while, and I really enjoyed it. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I, I have Dr. Gary Fetke on. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. It's a good morning and good afternoon, wherever it is. <laughs> yeah. And he's in uh, Tasmania, Australia, right? It's, it's yes. 7, 7 a.m. there, 4 p.m. here in Chicago. So uh, we made it work. And uh, Gary is, I, I like your, your title on your, your, I think it was your Twitter, X, X Silence orthopedic surgeon ad- advocating <laughs> for real food. Um, how, how did you uh, come about with that title? Well, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm sort of heading into semi-retirement at the moment, partly because of lots of things happening in the world, but as much because of frustration with um, you know, trying to get a simple message of health across and you know, going to work and realising that you don't actually need to operate on most of the people if everyone makes a lifestyle related change and you would have seen that u.s data out just you know recently saying that uh, over 93 percent of the u.s population are metabolically unwell and i'm having a meeting later today just again i always give long answers sorry brian but that's okay i'll I'll cut you off (laughs) i need (laughs) so i mean if we've effectively got 93 percent of the population have a lifestyle related condition which needs a lifestyle-related management, and all we're doing as a health system or sickness industry is just medicating and operating. So um, as years have gone by, I've, I've found that the most powerful tool I've had in my armamentarium is actually to not operate on people. And so I'm spending a lot of time doing that at the moment. So particularly when it came to diabetes and diabetic foot ulcers and bits of toes and amputations, which need, you know, legs that needed to come off, if those people had really good dietary control they of their sugar intake carbohydrate intake then they wouldn't have needed to have amputations wouldn't have had the diabetic complications and we're only just talking about the orthopedic ones not forget you know let's not forget the eye issues and the kidney issues and the brain issues that are associated with diabetes long term 
So I started talking, when I started working this out, which is 10, 12 years ago, I started speaking out about the perils of sugar and particularly refined carbohydrates, highly processed food. And not surprisingly, I think it took a good oh, 24 hours before the sugar industry came after me. And then that became a concerted campaign over years. I got reported to the medical board on three occasions, one, one of which was because I'd inappropriately reversed someone's diabetes. But we did that on national TV. And I know that sounds ludicrous, but that's actually <laughs> what did happen. And the medical board came after me because I was advising my patients not to have sugar. And I've, I've got that's, all of that's you know, written down, documented, witnessed. That's I what know, they came after. Well, I know you have a, that website, <clears throat> isupportgary.com, right? Is that, did that come up out from that? Yeah, so um, I was uh, literally silenced by the medical board, not allowed to talk about this, not allowed to talk about nutrition, even if it became best practice. But that, you know, literally, that was the ruling. You're not allowed to talk about this, even in the future, if it becomes best practice, which I think is crazy because then if I didn't talk about it, then that wouldn't be best practice and then you could get reported to the medical board. You know, you can see this catch-22 scenario. Right. So in the process of um, being silenced by the medical board, um, we literally, I just handed the baton across to Belinda, my wife, and um, so literally on the, the Facebook page, which used to be Gary Fetke, no fructose, um, I literally drew a line through the word Gary and wrote Belinda in handwriting across it, <laughs> which the medical board didn't really take kindly to because it was essentially just extending the middle finger. <laughs> but most of the, but Belinda's her own voice. And so right. in the process of my silencing and then my really just, and I, I'd put together almost a PhD in the defense of this topic. So I've done an enormous amount of research. Belinda would saying, look, you're talking about the science going blue in the face. Tim Noakes in South Africa, good friend. He was in the same sort of trouble with his medical board. Multiple people around the board of the world getting into some strife over this issue. And she said, look, you guys are talking the science. She didn't want to understand it. She understood the science. She's an ex-nurse. She said, there's something else going on. So she actually has now become the I'd say the world's leading expert on the vested interest shaping dietary guidelines yeah. and people from all around the world contact her. So she started a website called I Support Gary, which literally is just where she's, well, isupportgary.com. Uh, and I said, look, you can't do that. It's really corny. She said, no, that's what she wants to do. <laughs> and that became a platform of actually putting her research out there. Yeah. Because she couldn't be silenced. So that's, fabulous resource and her talks are amazing mm. so i talk about the science and the biochemistry because you can't argue that right and then she talks about the vested interests and some of our talks cross over on all of that but when you actually realize that this isn't about science nutrition science has never been about about nutrition and it's definitely not about science it's what i call marketing based science a lot of people have heard about evidence-based science mm-hmm which is theoretically what we should act upon. Then there's a whole lot of people, then you've heard about eminence-based science because whoever rules the roost, whoever I'll say is actually receiving money from the pharmaceutical industry or food industry, and they hold the sway on, on opinion and guidelines. That's eminence-based. But with nutrition science has got full of marketing-based science. You know, how do we make our product more palatable? How do we prove that it's actually safer? And it's literally just made up. And that's right. really what I've been calling out, and that's what I've gotten into trouble for, because 
you know, it's literally, we've had a social experiment for the last 50, 60 years of processed food, you know, moving away from an ancestral diet, a community, you know, an environmental diet to actually processed food. And, you know, it's a walking disaster zone out there. And, uh, we were talking before we came on, you touched on, uh, you did a YouTube piece and I, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes cause I think it's great. And I think it'll stand the test of time. Honestly, it was, you did it in 2014. And if any, everyone watches that, I think it might've been 45 minutes, give or take. And it was the model of modern disease. Uh, I mean, you touched on a lot of points that I, that I, I think are worth talking about. One of them was almost, you know, this, um, eating seasonally approach, um, which is a, you know, like ancestrally, if you think about it, only certain fruits were available at certain times and, um, and, you know, even certain vegetables or, you know, these, what you call like high octane, octane carbs during a certain period. And then, and then you'd have, um, time, irritative times where, um, you know, you'd have some famine and some quote unquote starvation or fasting. And I just thought that was interesting. Maybe you can touch on, on, on your, your thoughts behind that. Uh, look, I've rewritten because everyone wants guidelines, you know, the hospitals and institutions and governments want food guidelines. And so in, in, a, in a pragmatic and somewhat arrogant way, I've actually rewritten the dietary guidelines for the world in one sentence, which is, you know, years of getting to that. But it's eat, and we can dissect that. It's eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your environment and culture, avoiding added sugar and processed food. Now, if you think about that, that's how we evolved. Right. You know, and that takes into account all sorts of cultural environments. And, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by latitude mm. because the closer you are to the equator, the more sunlight you're getting, the more exposure to vitamin D. Vitamin D is actually critical for metabolizing some of the byproducts of fructose, which is half of sugar, glucose, fructose. But that half, that fructose, is actually under the direct effect of sunlight, the byproducts of it. So the closer you are to latitude to the equator, yeah, sure, you can have a bit more fruit in your diet because you can actually metabolize. But the further you are away, and you know, what, what, what's the latitude of Chicago? It'd be 40, 45 something, isn't it? <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you, but... I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, you know, it, it's it's even further. It's further north than we are south here. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, um, I, I say to people, you know, so you, oh, you have snow up in Chicago. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when when you go to the shop and you actually see apples and oranges from California, there, mm. well, I, that's not that's not fresh. It's not local. It's certainly not seasonal. Right. And, you know, think about the food miles associated with it. And in, when you, in the winter, when you don't have much vitamin D exposure, you shouldn't be eating truckloads of fruit. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm sorry, that, that's the way we evolved. But the biochemistry behind it, which was only described in 2010, behind fructose, actually backs that up. So most people involved in health or sickness, whichever way you want to call it, actually don't have this in their textbooks. So the metabolism of fructose isn't in there. And, and that, the talk that I've just done recently about carbohydrate, the doses, the poison, there's literature in there which is only 12 months old. And so we're actually still just learning about glucose and insulin. And so th this stuff you'd think we would know 
truckloads about it. And, it, and there's been certainly stuff written for decades, but the modern biochemistry of it's actually now showing when you actually take the food industry out of the equation and the pharmaceutical industry, there are major issues behind actually having too much glucose consumption and certainly too much fructose consumption. And, that, and that's really where I started that journey when I <clears throat> had patients in hospital out of control diabetes and one guy in particular was being given ice cream three times a day. So I'm trying to control his blood sugars, I'm trying to actually save his foot, I'm, and here I come in and he keep, keeps eating ice cream. And I said, well, hang on, can you stop doing that? And they said, oh, no, the, the dietitians have told me I'm supposed to be having this. I'm eating the hospital food. Right. And, and, you know, uh, and one right. of the things I got in, the, I gave a talk to the hospital food industry, the national body here in Australia at one time. <clears throat> my second slide was hospital food is crap and it's killing my patients. I like that. <laughs> <clears throat> And then I, you know, but it was a figure of speech because if you actually come into hospitals, you should be setting a really good example for the patients. You should be giving them the best quality food, the best possible healing environment, good le levels of protein, good healthy fats in there. And hospitals are just serving like garbage, garbage, you know, it, it's low quality, low nutrient value. And people and, and hospital dietitians get upset when you say that. But I go, let's, you know, I started studying that. And we started looking at the nutrient density of the food being served in hospitals. And it just wasn't up to scratch. I would write on patients' charts. People would come in with you know, leg ulcers, foot ulcers, poor diabetes control. And I'd write on their chart for them to have two eggs a day and two pieces of cheese. You know, incredibly dangerous. You know, that's what, but I'd have to write that as a medication. And literally, literally, you start seeing an improvement in their in their ulceration, literally by, by applying, you know, supplying protein. Anyway, the hospital food industry, they, they were quite happy with the talk. They actually asked me to come back and do it again because oh, that's good. it shook a few people up. And, um, but the medical board um, apparently you know, were reported that I said hospital food is crap and it's killing my patients. So then they wrote to my hospital to ask exactly how many people died from hospital food when they were inpatients. I said, it's a figure of speech. You know, it, 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 if you, and again, if, if it all it'll kill you over time, it'll kill you over time, right? <laughs> it'll kill you over time. And, right. I, and I think modern food, highly processed food, we're, we are not, we're not meant to eat it in the frequency that we have it and the amount that we have it. And so therefore I use the term, are we allergic to it? You know, if we constantly expose our something, so to something which is going to kill you, then that's just as allergic as giving peanuts to a kid with a nut allergy. And it, sure, it doesn't happen right in front of your face, but it does happen over, you know, we, you know it happens over decades now, which isn't really, you know, well, it literally happens over a lifetime. Yeah. Happens by middle age. Right. Yeah, well, there, there's a, a tangent for you. This podcast is for middle age, isn't it? <laughs> What, what, what's your definition of middle age? Yeah, that's a good question because I would say 40 plus I'm 42. I don't, I will say, I feel like I'm like probably 28. <laughs> so I guess, I guess that's just a, 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 a term, a statement, but middle-aged, uh, there's people who are like my age and they look like 
and maybe they feel like they're 30, but there's people who I know I've seen are 42 and they look like they're 52. So I, I think it's just a number, but you know, I guess the definition depends on the person. I, I, you've got off another tangent. Have you read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. It is, you know, the answer to the life, the universe and everything is 42. The answer to what? Life, the universe and everything is 42. So it, it, it's, I, I, it's a fascinating book of philosophy. I read it when I was in my 20s and I thought it was funny. And when I read it when, when I was 42, I thought, wow, that's a book of philosophy. So it's the only book that you have to read. It's in the 100 classic books of all oh. time, but it's the only book okay. you have to read at the age of 42. Really? So anybody okay. I know turns 42, I give them a copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's it's a very influential book. Uh, uh, I, I read Elon Musk's biography a couple of years ago, and um, he says it's his most, the book that influenced him the most. Right. Um, but uh, the And what that book's about is not the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. I'm not actually giving you anything away by that. <laughs> but the most important thing about the book is actually what is the question. So if we actually come back to, you know, life and living and all those sorts of things, it's actually the question is actually as important as the answer. I've got, but here's my definition of middle age, okay? It's 20 years older than me. But I've been saying that for more than 20 years. So by definition now, I've actually screwed myself. I am now middle aged. <clears throat> So, I mean, that's just, that's a philosophical take on it. Right. Um, so I, I don't know the definition of middle age. There are, you know, mm -hmm. some days that I feel that I'm 30 and other days I feel <laughs> like I'm 60. And so, I mean, that, um, but. Um, well, I, I think, I think, you know, the point of this podcast and just even my lifestyle in general is to just to preserve as long as possible, right. <laughs> to, to feel like you know, the feel and look as, as young as you can. And, um, you know, I still get aches and pains here and there, but, uh, you know, doing these lifestyle like, uh, practices that I talk about or that you talk about can go a long way. I'm sure you've seen it in your practice. Oh, look, not just my practice. It's my personal life, my family's life. It's actually made enormous differences. Yeah. I'm a grandfather now, and it's really interesting to watch our two grandchildren, grow up with this sort of lifestyle now all grandparents think their grandchildren are wonderful mm -hmm. and uh, ours are and blah 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 but nonetheless all i can say is that watching them grow up this is not harming them eating real food watching them go to a party and go i'll try that bit of lolly over there but don't like it and not having you know and having good healthy unprocessed food in their in their life uh they, they just they, they're great you know they've got their grandfather wrapped around their little finger but that's you know that's part of the game so and that's essentially when you start looking at this lifestyle this is the basic in which includes fasting you know that ancestral diet that's our safe mode of operating mm -hmm. so the more research i've done the more study i've done the more i've realized that actually when the going gets tough the body moves into a state of ketosis and it's the safe operating mode of the computer. It's the safe operating mode of the body. So, you know, if you're sick and you're uh, in hospital, then you tend to not eat, you lose your appetite. 
the body moves into that fasting state and that ketotic state is actually one that switches on your immune system it switches on your cognition a bit more it allows you to become a bit sharper i've worked with some special forces over time and they actually when they say they run keto in their training they feel and i love the word this one the guy described said they feel he felt keener 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 k-double-e keen he felt keener he just said we're on we're on the edge we we know that that's actually you know you're fired up you're fueled up your brain's aware and they they actually they they move in and out of ketosis but when they're in training to actually do their their stuff they move into it and and dom diagostino is doing an enormous amount of work with the navy seals over in the u.s uh defense forces are looking at this as a and, and it's I mean, it's a fascinating topic because if you can make your soldiers stronger and faster and carry twice as much fuel because let's say in fat there's nine calories per gram whereas in carbs there's four gram four calories per gram your soldiers can carry more fuel on their body to last twice as long i'm not saying just eat fat but i'm what i'm sort of saying keep your protein and your, your, your healthy fats up fuel your bodies off that you know, and, and you'd be, you know, you know about this. You know, it's a hot topic in endurance sport. It's a hot topic in sport across the board. You know, with you know, how, how much carb loading do you need? Yeah, and not it, much actually. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, interesting. I mean, it comes up all the time. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on you know coming in and out of ketosis. It's we're we're having this chat right now. I actually just did a longer. I don't do a lot of extended fast, but occasionally I like to just go maybe a couple of days. Um, hmm. and I actually measured my ketones. I was like, actually it was 2.0 towards the end of the fast. It was about a 40 hour fast. Um, and then I just decided to break it. Um, but I, 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 you know, maybe do that once or once every couple months. And, and other than that, I, I am pretty, my body feels better eating lower carb. I'm just curious. Um, what are your thoughts about implementing carbs and sort of gauging ketosis and coming in and out of it? Or do you think, you know, long-term ketosis is something that is, you know, a viable thing? Well, I'm talking to you. So I've actually been in probably ketosis for as long as I've measured for the last 10 years. So people might say I've lost the plot, but here I am. I actually still am alive despite being in ketosis every time I've tested in the last 10 years. And I don't test all the time. And I'm in a low level. Point. The, you, when you, I'm sorry, when you measure, are you measuring your blood? I measure blood. I think okay. it, um, the three ways of measuring ketones is you can measure it in your urine, and that, that's cheap, but the trouble is after a couple of, after maybe four to six weeks, you'll start resorbing those urinary ketones, and a lot of people think, oh, I'm failing, but in fact the body's just completely keto-adapting, and so that's a, a, a difficult, it's a hard way to, to measure a level. You can measure it off a breath analyzer, but they're expensive and not that not that accurate. And the blood one, well, it, uh, it, the strips are, uh, you know, a little bit more expensive than the blood glucose ones, but that you, you can test it and it, it's very accurate. But mm-hmm. I, always, I often say to people, why do you want to test it? How much do you want to test it? What number are you going for? Because there's not the only people who've done a lot of work on this is Steve Finney and Jeff Volick. And, and and Tom Seyfried with cancer work. But if you're an elite athlete and you're really trying to get to that keto adaptation and endurance sport, it seems that getting to that level of two to four millimoles of ketones 
is 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 that optimal zone for that and i think it's hard to get to for yeah. a lot of people and, <laughs> and some people can get there a lot easier than others um tom seaford with his cancer work is really looking to try and get the ketones up very high and the glucose down very low again really hard for people we don't really know what the answer is for optimal living i think you know, I, I, I did a talk on a brief talk on the, the role of um, the biochemistry of religion a few years ago. Okay. <clears throat> it just dawned on me one day. And to cut it in a nutshell, every religion observes fasting and the benefits of fasting. It doesn't matter if it's you know, Lent in, in Christianity or Ramadan in, 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 in Islam or or um, intermittent fasting in, in, for Buddhists. So every religion has recognized over thousands of years that there are benefits of fasting and they talk about points of mental clarity they talk about general well-being but the biochemistry of that is that they're moving into states of nutritional ketosis and they put that fast in there and we know that that's actually a cell clearing mechanism it's a mitochondrial clearing mechanism aptosis uh, of, of cells it, it's a it's a way of getting rid of your damaged cells and regenerating recirculating those proteins back into the body so that, that's fasting, and I think that's probably tied it up culturally when food wasn't available in some cultures. So, okay, there's not a lot of food available at the end of summer, you know, about that, that period of summer because the, the, the fruit's about to ripen on the tree. Uh, you'd have to hunt your food. So, you know, we, it's interesting that religions organise their periods of fasting around Northern Hemisphere periods of not a lot of plenty anyway so yeah I, 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 I don't know the answer to it that's a simple answer I I personally have been in a low grade of ketosis for my own health and well-being for a long period of time when, when you say a low grade you mean like 0. 0.4 0. 0.5 millimeter point, yeah, yeah point and again if you, it's going to generally a bit higher if you measure in the afternoon than if you measure in the morning yeah. Um, I think it's so. Therefore, you play a mind game. Oh, do I want to be in ketosis? I'll, I'll test it this afternoon. Oh, gee, I don't. Like, you know, it's just. I think that being in that state of ketosis is not bad. I think, and I don't know the answer as to whether or not there's some benefit in actually being in and out of ketosis and in and out of fasting. I personally like eating. You know, I've grown up eating. I like, <laughs> I like food. And um, food's a major part of community and, and relationships. And so right. um, the breaking of the fast, now Belinda doesn't have food until lunchtime. She's always broken her fast. And the term having breakfast in the morning is, you know, is literally made up by the cereal industry and the Seventh-day Adventists as a marketing-based tool to actually have breaking your fast in the morning. So... Um, so Belinda's better at intermittent fasting than I am, but with the science behind it, we don't know the answer, except that it's, it's good to have it from a cell cleansing mechanism. How much you should be in, how often you should be in it, don't know the answer. So you, I say to people, aim for it if you want to be hardcore. The very first thing, for, you know, particularly in diabetes managers, what we call therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. Let's reduce the carbohydrate load that the body's having. 
If you want to go hardcore, then try to lose a bit more weight, or you might be looking at cancer management or a lot of metabolic health issues, then you might be definitely wanting to go towards ketosis. But the first thing is that let's stop, let's reduce the amount of highly processed food in the diet, of which the biochemistry of it is, you know, reduce your carbs, certainly reduce your seed oils, reduce your your sugars with the unnecessary ones. Well, sorry, there are no necessary ones, so... And, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to start. And I know you talk a lot about on your website, like eliminating snacking, which I had, uh, Dr. Jason Fung on mm. and, uh, Megan Ramos, who they work hand in hand. And Megan's like, her one tip was if you could get to the point where you're just eliminating snacking, that's a great place to start. Um, even if you want to have three square meals a day. Um, and, and I know you talk about eating only when you are hungry. Um, mm. I, I always say the biggest way to try to avoid hunger is to have nutrient dense foods. What are some of the, the foods, the nutrient dense foods that you recommend uh, or that you do uh, on a daily basis? Well, there, there are two, two sides to that. <clears throat> if yeah. you eat to nutrient density, you won't be hungry. If you eat empty carbohydrates, particularly the fructose component, or if you've got, if you're overweight, 30% of glucose gets flipped into fructose that fructose will, will drive behavior. And so therefore, a lot of our snacking is actually because we think we're hungry. Our body tells us we're hungry, but that's actually fructose having an effect on our hunger centers, actually stimulating our hunger, stimulating ghrelin, which makes your tummy rumble, and inhibiting leptin, which is the leptin's hormone um, secreted by fat to tell you you're not hungry. So if you've got plenty of fat on board and plenty of fat stores, you don't actually need to eat from an energy requirement. You might need to eat from a nutrient requirement, which is proteins, healthy fats, micronutrients, but you don't need it from an energy requirement. But if you eat fructose, it will tell you to keep eating. So the very the first thing, if you want to avoid snacking, is stop eating sugar. Because A, that'll take away the driving mechanism. Mm. And these sugars I, are hidden too. <laughs> oh, well, they come under multiple names. You know, yeah. And, and the food industry you know, will hide them under multiple names because they're not interested in health. They're interested in their profit line. And I know that's a cynical statement, but, you know, we can back it up a thousand times over with, you know, here's this guideline that's been influenced by this and this and this. If So what do I eat? Well, I, my, it's really interesting. When you take away sugar out of the diet, your body will start telling you what you want to eat. It will tell you, like, I'll wake up and say, actually, I think I'd like protein now. I'm hungry for protein. So I tend to say to people, if, and I, I hate percentages on macronutrients. People say, what percentage do you have? I say, I don't know, because I don't think you want to know. I think you want to listen to your body, eat your protein to requirements. So when you're young and very fit and very active and you're elderly, you need more protein yeah. per kilo. So eat protein to requirements. And then eat fat to satiety. As, and in the general, if you're eating and this, you know, a predominantly animal-based diet, meaning that it's got your you know, nose to tail, you're eating your meats, you're meeting, eating your eggs. Dairy for, is tolerated by many, not tolerated by a lot as well. So, I mean, you've got to fit dairy into that equation. I like cheese. Cheese for me is just, you know, great because it's got protein in it. 
got a certain amount of fat in it, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dairy intolerant. Right, me neither. <laughs> so, which is good. It, yeah. gives, it gives lots of variety. So, if you're eating that, and so you know, people always say, "What do you have for breakfast?" I, well, I have an omelette, generally speaking, and literally, I've got a sandwich maker, a little flat thing, put a little silicon ring into it, and I drop in last night's meat, maybe some veg if we found it there, egg, bit of cheese, close the lid, put the kettle on. And by the time the kettle's boiled, I've got to cook breakfast. And uh, that, and that's it. So I've, I've had an, an energy, I've had a nutrient-dense breakfast with a reasonable amount of protein and a reasonable amount of energy in the form of, well, you know, the, the cheese with the saturated fats in it. And then that, that'll run me for a while. Then I, oh. I, But you know, the snack food I have in the house, because... You know, I, I'm a snacker. I used to be the fat kid. I, I, I've, I've broken all those rules through my life. I've now got it worked out for me. And it, I think it's applicable for a lot of people, but not everyone has to follow exactly what I do. So if I'm hungry, then there's generally some biltong in the house. <clears throat> there are some nuts. I'm not having lots of nuts. There's a bit of cheese. Um, we've, we've, fortunately, we've got great sausages here. You know, yeah, pasture-fed you know, meats and you know, holistically raised animals, and we had good access to good food like that. So, I happen to know there's half a dozen sausages in the fridge. So, if I'm really hungry or lazy, that's my go-to snack. But you know, I don't have a packet of chips to go to. I don't have you know crackers to go to. I don't have uh, ice cream to go to. Well, I suppose go to the shop and buy some, but I'm effectively. You don't put, you don't have all that stuff in your pantry to distract you. Right. Karen Zinn's a dietitian in in New Zealand. She's got a great line. She says, "Empty pantry, full fridge." Yes, or or freezer. Actually, my wife and I uh, every month or so order a bunch of quality grass fed, grass finished meats and wild salmon, and we just stock the freezer. And then the night before, you just pull out what you want. You know, if you want to have a little something, maybe a few veggies with that. And, uh, you know, we, we pretty much grill almost every night. Um, and, uh, I think that I think cooking, cooking for yourself, you know, you talk a lot about polyunsaturated fats and oils. Cause like, I, I think cooking for yourself is something that can go and go a long way. Cause you obviously know what's going in the food, maybe touch a little bit on, you know, polyunsaturated fats and oils, because I would imagine 99% of restaurants are using this, maybe not in Australia, mm. but. <laughs> oh, no, they are. They, yes. um, this is a really murky area, which is being, I think, significantly blurred by marketing based science. So the, the, the industrial seed oils, the polyunsaturated seed oils, are cheap, transportable, don't need refrigeration. Right. Therefore, there's profit margin in them. Virtually all the – so the different – essentially you've got fats and oils that are exactly the same thing. If the definition is that fat is solid at room temperature and oil is liquid at room temperature. There is no food or plant or anything that doesn't have a combination of saturated fat monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat, everything has a combination of it. So there's a, a, a 
coconut oil is probably the closest thing to just being saturated fat, but it still has a bit of monounsaturated, polyunsaturated. Mm -hmm. So whenever it says oh, everything's evil and everything's bad, it, does, it can never get anything purified. Right. So a saturated fat is solid at room temperature, a polyunsaturated oil is liquid at room temperature. And it makes sense because the polyunsaturated, means, poly means double many, and it has many double bonds within it. Those double bonds create flexibility for the oil. So plants tend to have polyunsaturated oils in them so that in a winter temperature, the oil will still move up and down the plant so the plant survives. Hmm. We're not at room temperature. Our bodies are at 36 degrees, what is it, 90? 98. 98 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit. And that therefore our bodies are predominantly made of saturated fat with small amounts of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat. And at 37 degrees, we're actually liquid. You know, that's actually, we're flexible. But if we were made, if we were floating along at zero degrees or minus, you know, minus 20, minus 30, then our bodies would literally seize up. But we're not. So anyway, those flex, those polyunsaturated oils are flexible. But the problem with those, those polyunsaturated oils, where the double bond exists, are points of not only flexibility, they're points of weakness. Those points of weakness can actually become oxidized. So those oxidation points, are, oxidation is what happens with rusting on a bit of steel. Mm -hmm. It's the point of inflammation and it's the point of where reaction occurs. So when a seed oil, an industrial seed oil comes into the body, and it's exposed to oxygen over a period of time, which is in our bodies, then they become oxidized. That oxidation process becomes a point of inflammation. What's really interesting, if, if we can go back as far as probably measurable, which is about 200 years, we our bodies probably had 1% or 2% polyunsaturated oils in them. The current thoughts are that we're probably moving closer towards now 30% of the fat within our bodies linoleic acid, it's one of the omega-6s. It's been measured in the body since the 1950s, 1960s. And I'm still, Stephen, Stephen Gannett, I caught mm -hmm. up with him, he, he put up the first time I saw that graph. And we had communication going, well, how, who, why did they start measuring that? And we actually don't quite know why they started measuring. But they no. did. So we've got all this stuff in the 1960s, so really good, strong evidence. And then for the last... 50, 60 years, but they've continued to measure linoleic acid levels in the fat of the body. They've also been measuring it in breast milk. African yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. US women, Western women. And what's happened is our, the amount of omega-6 linoleic acid levels have steadily gone up. So the problem I see then is that you've now got 30% of the fat in our bodies can become oxidized where it used to be one or 2%. Right. And we do need essential fatty acids. No, they're there, but we need them in small amounts. We don't need 30% of the fat in our cell membranes, in our mitochondrial membranes, which are the engines of the body to be highly inflammatory material. Mm. That's a mechanistic process. <clears throat> That means that our babies at an embryonic level, when they're two cells, four cells, eight, 16, they're actually made up of what highly inflammatory material. The cell membranes are not functionally as strong as something that's made up without inflammatory material. Just, 
So have we got this explosion of disease in children now? And again, this is a hypothesis, can't prove it. I can give a mechanism, and the mechanism is that we're actually raising our children in a highly inflammatory milieu. Literally, everything's at in the woman's you in the woman's womb is in fact not for all women, but there's more inflammatory material in there. And I'm not even talking about other chemicals that are floating around in our environment. You know, we're not. I'm not even. I'm simply talking about polyunsaturated oils and comparing that also to relatively high glucose levels. You then that becomes yeah. So there, I'll go down two pathways after that. So that, that's a mechanism, and it's, to me that I think that sort of makes sense. Impossible to prove this because you can never run that experiment over time. But we've got association data two ways on that. One is we've got association data driven by the food industry over time, saying that margarine's good and polyunsaturated oils are good. But when you take that data apart, and, I, and I'm not the only one who's done that, but lots of people take Zoe Harkham has done a lot of work on this. That data is completely flawed. And then you've got studies like the Minnesota Heart Study, you've got the Sydney Heart Study, where when you look back at that data and you reappraise it, you find out that those people that had more polyunsaturated oils and margarines in their diet actually had higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And that data was, in fact, buried by the companies. Mm. Buried. You know, are we surprised? No. But, you know, because this would be, you know, and there was one, um, the Minnesota one, they didn't release their data for 30 years because it didn't fit with the marketing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just going to say, if it's everywhere, I mean, if you look at labels, right, like sunflower seed oil, uh, canola oil, all these vegetable oils, right? Like hmm. they're, they're everywhere. It's, Look, we've got chickens out here, and if I want to buy a, a a grain mix, a natural grain mix for them, it's got seed oil in it. It's got a they put it in there because it it stops the the grain from getting dust on it. You know, it de-dusts it and keeps it all night. So it's really hard to even find chook food unless you get plain wheat for them. And guess what? They love wheat because they're addicted to it. It's like sugar. You know, it's like horses. You give them oats on race day because it makes them run faster because it makes them go crazy. Yeah, it makes the them. Yeah, it makes them fatter too, right? So the wheat. Oh yes. Yeah. You fatten them up with grain. You know, we we do it all the time with our animals, and when we wonder why, you know, we haven't observed the same problem with ourselves. Yeah. The flip side of that is what happens to and uh, in morning sickness to women. <clears throat> Our daughter was pretty crook with um, morning sickness. And it made me look at it. The old wives tale is, oh, if you've got severe morning sickness, the baby will turn out fine. Really? And, but I thought, actually, I'm going to look at this. <clears throat> and it made me aware that when she that first trimester of pregnancy, which is the most critical time of development for a baby, when a woman's not eating because she's got morning sickness, like the can't eat because everything is quite thrown up, she has moved into ketosis. It's measurable. And uh, and they do measure women who get really sick and come into hospital, they've got they're in ketosis. Our daughter was in ketosis, just mild ketosis. 
So I thought, hang on, this is really interesting. We've actually got an experiment in place where we can actually measure the outcomes. So as it turns out, in the literature, there are tens of thousands of children that have been studied of the outcomes of women who have actually had morning sickness. As it turns out, the more severe the morning sickness, by my definition, the greater this period of time in ketosis, the better the outcomes for the babies. So we actually look at them, tens of thousands of studies now, or tens of thousands of patients in multiple studies. The, baby, the, the pregnancies tend to be less complicated. The babies tend to run out to term. They're more likely to be of normal birth weight. They are uh, less likely to have uh, miscarriages through the pregnancy they end up with less congenital abnormalities and the children uh, develop perfectly well, mm. arguably smarter than average. Take the other side, which is gestational diabetes. Again, tens of thousands of women studied with gestational diabetes with poor blood glucose control. It's got nothing to do with seed oils, but it does have evidence of what happens with elevated blood glucose. Babies grow in a state of ketosis. We know that they grow well. When you actually have fluctuating levels of blood glucose, which then crosses the placenta, <clears throat> those babies, those women are more likely to have miscarriages. The babies are less likely to get through to term. They're more likely to have high birth weights and low birth weights. They're more likely to have congenital abnormalities, particularly the environmental ones like the cardiovascular ones. And they're more likely, again, association, to have learning difficulties and ADHD. So it's... It, it, and again, that's observational data, but it's been done on tens of thousands. So if I went along and actually said, okay, I want to do a study on women mm -hmm. and I want to put 50% of them into fasting and put them into ketosis and the other 50%, I want to get them highly processed food. I'd never get that past an ethics committee. <laughs> they go, oh, you're killing them. You're going to kill them both ways. I said, no, no, but what I'm saying is we've already got that data and it's been going for decades. And I, I say, and so there's again, it's a talk on YouTube. It's all referenced. All the references are there at the end. Just go and look, and that's so you, you much did, stuff. You, you did a talk on YouTube about this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what's the what's the title? Do you know? Oh, if um, not, you you I could we could search it. Yeah, but sure. essentially, uh, you've got Fedke YouTube and um, yeah, uh, find it. Um, Morning sickness. Yeah, I think that's it. Morning sickness. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, what on earth is an orthopedic surgeon talking about morning sickness for? But <laughs> it was. It's this is you know all I'm doing is applying the scientific method across something, and people will say, okay, he's got cognitive dissonance, and he's looking at. It. I sort of go and look at it yourself. I don't you know. I'm, right. I've got. I'm not making any money. I've got nothing to prove here. I'm only sticking my neck out. Mm -hmm. And I had a few obstetricians say you shouldn't be talking in that space. And then I had a whole lot of obstetricians contact me and say, "Wow, I'd never thought about it like that. Thanks for the information. I can pass that on." Because again, that, lots of people, have got, lots of women have got morning sickness. They're worried about it. Here's the scientific basis the likely science behind it. But here are the results. I've just tabulated them. Nothing wow. that's not, and that, that's what, you know, there's a talk on mine, which I've done, which is not on anything, which I give from time to time, about where is the best spot to hide something. Do you know where that is? Where is the best spot to hide something? Yes. I don't it's know. It's in, in plain sight.
in plain sight in plain sight so it's right, right in front of you if you go looking for it <laughs> it's, right, it's right in front of you you don't have to look very hard yeah that's true um, in a lot of things <laughs> and so you know we, blinder's work is about you know showing the role of the adventist church who are the second biggest educator in the world in manipulating our dietary guidelines now they, they effectively started the cereal industry the soy industry the western soy industry and the meat the alternate meat industry now that mm. But and they've been manipulating dietary guidelines. What's really interesting is they're very proud of it. So if you go, it's not it's not as though it's hidden. People go, oh, you can't say that. I go, actually, no. They're actually saying if you go and have a listen to them, and find their papers and, and what they're talking about, and where they are in the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and the dietary guidelines committees, they've been working really, really hard to do exactly what they're doing, which is to turn us into vegans. And I don't have a problem with vegans because they, you know, they're interested in the health outcomes on the planet and all that. But if they're actually taking their, their proof that that's the way to go from the Adventist church ministries, which back in the 1950s started their Adventist health studies to prove their point that the visions of Ellen G. White and a vegan diet is appropriate. And, but, you know, everything is manipulated. <clears throat> According to the Adventist Health Studies, you know the defini definition of vegetarian and vegan? Well. So it, well it, it's, it's interesting. You're vegetarian if you don't have meat more than once a week. <laughs> and you're vegan if you don't have meat more than once a month. Now, that's not the message that's out there, but that's what they used in their studies. <laughs> so I, I, I'm... I'm all for us eating clean food and a bit of it, but if you actually give everyone the impression that it, don't eat meat at all, don't touch an animal product, then you're not going to actually get in those, those micronutrients, particularly vitamin B12 that you need. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll definitely, if you're, you know, vegan or vegetarian, I was pescatarian for a while and I found once I went to more animal proteins, I mean, I'm fairly active and like the lift. I mean, I just saw a huge jump in, in my workouts and, 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 you know, taking DEXA scans and, and gaining muscle. So, um, and we all know how important it is to maintain muscle mass as we age. I look, I, I'm a great believer that we should be eating to our nutrient requirements. <clears throat> if you have a plant-based diet over time, you are not going to get all of your essential micronutrients you're not going to get your essential proteins and you're not going to get your essential fats. It's really, really hard to do a well-constructed vegan diet and it's going to catch up. <clears throat> Whereas yeah, you can do it, that's fine. But right. you know, if you, you probably but, just need the supplement. Well, you've got a supplement and so therefore that's not a whole food diet. Right. Whereas if your diet is probably animal-based and I'm not talking about factory farming, I'm not talking about holistically raised animals of which if we are smarter about it, we can turn our grasslands into productive land, then we're going to have a healthier population. We have less sickness. We're going to have less costs associated with that. And uh, I don't think we can afford to keep going the pathway we are. I think we have to go. We have to relook at the whole equation because you know, people say, oh, the cost of healthcare is blown out. And I said, well, yes, but... If the cost of healthcare is going 
to pharmaceutical industries and it's going to band-aiding sick care. Whereas if we go back to the root cause and actually put that money back into our primary industry and support our farmers and get that whole produce back, to, it, it's, it's a complete no-brainer, but it requires a rethink. But if you're asking, waiting for governments to do that, it's going to take a long time, but the individual can do it today. So you know, power to the people. They can literally, you can decide, don't matter how bad your life is, whatever the situation is, you alone have got control, particularly in Western world, of what you're going to eat this afternoon or not eat or even fast. Um, I had Dr. Robert Lustig on. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with him, with uh, Metabolical. I always... Um, it's a, I recommend that's a great book if anyone wants to learn more about what we're Bob, Bob's done some great, great work. Um, yeah. We've had, uh, had Belinda and I caught up with Bob in um, San Francisco a couple of years ago and had a great steak dinner. I'd like to you know, throw a plug out to the restaurant, but I can't remember what it was. So. <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> okay. I was there last year. It was good. Yeah, it was good. Great. It was a, it's, um, it's, he was been a great supporter of us he, because he, we're obviously talking about the sugar at the same time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see a lot of what you're talking about, you know, with what's going on, just in the food industry and um, and metabolic health. The same along the same lines as as Dr. Lustig. And um, I wanted to finish up with um, a couple questions. One, uh, before I ask you the last one, is I know you're you wanted to talk a little bit about golf, and I said I would I could talk an hour about golf. But we probably <laughs> want. I'm going to ask for your prediction for the open championship. And when this comes out, the open championship will be, will be over, but you'll look really good. If you say who, who's going to win it, um, is it going to be an Australian? <laughs> well, I think golf's a really thing. If you're actually in low carb keto, because it goes over some hours, mm. I think whoever is going to be running closest to low carb keto <laughs> is actually going to win. And, and because they're going to have greater concentration. I, I'll bag my club president out. I was playing golf with him the other day, and he was having a great round. He was, he was off three. <clears throat> he was three under? No, he was off, he was off a handicap of three. Uh, okay, he okay. he's a three handicap. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, um, he, uh, he, was, he, he was well under card. He was having a great round, and at, at nine holes, he, he snacked up. Oh. He had um, some carbs. And I said to him, don't think you should have done that. Anyway, <laughs> he then blew That's... out. Around 20, 30 minutes later, he, he blew out two holes and and I, I, I laughed at him. So That's an interesting point because I do, I do a lot of my rounds in the morning in a fasted state. I'll just go right, you know, I'll, have, I'll just have some mineral water on the course with me. And, um, and then there's other times where maybe I play in the afternoon or I've had something before. I should do a... Um, a little test on myself, see what my average scores when I have. A... <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love golf for the reason um, is that it's the only thing I do where I have complete and utter control over the outcome of my actions. Yeah. Yeah. You decide if you want to go out and play golf, you want to stand over the ball, you decide what club you're going to use, you decide, and it's all, all my decision. I decide on when I want to hit it, what I want to do, whatever, and therefore, I have alone have con control of that outcome. So many other sports we do, so many, like we're having a conversation today, I'm reacting to your comment question, we're, we're, we're reacting to each other. So golf is the one thing that you've got complete control over. And as a result, I'd, 
I think it's a great judge of character. And I, I, I'd like, if I ever interview, if I'd like to employ someone, I'd like to have a round of golf with them and then have a, a drink in the bar or whatever afterwards. Because what happens is you see how they react to what, when they, when they muck it up. Because you can't, yeah. you never have a perfect round of golf. And how you react to what you've done to yourself is actually really interesting. And if you're having tantrums and go to pieces, then that's an interesting thing in character. And the other one is to actually then go along and have a, a drink or something like that, cup, a cup of tea, coffee, whatever, and see how they work and interact with people who serve them. And I had 11 jobs through university. I can still remember very clearly some people who just, I was working at a service station, people would go, check the tyres, boy, check the oil, do all that. And there was one guy in particular who used to treat me as, you know, man of servitude. And then um, a year later, I was an intern at the local hospital. And I had a white coat on and he came in with his daughter. I was the same guy. I never, never, I never changed the personality, whether or not I'm serving you petrol or, or in medicine. Hopefully, fairly down to earth. And he called me sir. And I went, hang on, what happened there? Mm-hmm. Literally 12 months have gone down the track, but I'm the same person. So what, how, how people react to you, how they react to themselves and how they react to others, great judges of character. And so golf, um, and, yeah. you know, I'd like to say I've never sworn on the golf course, but maybe I have. Well, yeah, I mean, I... And, and di- diets like that, sorry, no, diets like that, you you don't have to get it right all the time, but if you're actually heading in the right direction and sometimes you muck up and you go, okay, well, I've, look, I've just had a whole lot of, you know, takeaway. Okay, we'll just, okay, I'll get back on track. That, so it, that's a great point. Yeah. I never thought of it that way as far as, but as health is concerned, you're right. I actually did a little pot, micro podcast on, you know, if you have a off day of eating, you know, that's great as long as it doesn't turn to an off week and an off month. <laughs> You know, I, I come back to seed oils and that again, and I'll tell you a story about my daughter who's 26, but I can remember when she was about 15, we were flying at the airport and she said, Dad, uh, because the half-life of seed oils in the body is about four years, the omega-6 fatty acids, takes about wow. four years to get out, we think. And I, 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 there's a story about how, we, how we've come to that, but effectively we think it's certainly not two or three weeks, but it is a long period of time. Anyway, at the airport and we got off and she said, oh, Dad, I feel sick. Can I have some Macca's chips? Was they available at the airport? Because, And then I, she sort of knew how I felt about chips and carbs and seed oils. And then she, she's 15 or 16. She said, Dad, I promise not to get pregnant for four years. Oh. So... What father is not going to actually hand over a few dollars to guarantee that his daughter, his teenage daughter, is not going to get pregnant for four years? <laughs> so, but what, but I love that, I love her, but I love that story because she has made an informed decision to eat that food. And that's what the vast majority of the people on the planet don't do. They don't, they don't have the information or what information we've got has been literally made up by marketing non-science and therefore and food guidelines have been completely corrupted by the food industry since oh. october 23 1917 and that's 
Linda's work with the formation of the American Dietetics Association. So when you realize that, that what our guidelines have been corrupted, it's really hard to make an informed decision. And all that's all we're doing is putting out another side to the story and people can go, oh, that doesn't make sense or it does make sense. But I keep coming back to the biochemistry. Here's the biochemistry of what food does to you when you eat it. Doesn't matter if it's sugar or carbs or seed oils. This is the biochemistry. And this is how long it's going to last in the system. If you want to eat fruit and I will have some berries at night, but I know that I'll be asleep when they're going to make me hungry. We have that in a granola mix because that, you know, it, it's, it, it, it tastes good. But I'm not having a handful of berries, I'm having four. And so therefore, it's about giving people information that they can then make their own decisions based on. So I, I try and work out, okay, here's the biochemistry. Belinda's work and all of her talks on YouTube are all about why that message from the food industry and pharmaceutical industry and governments is flawed. And again, this is our research. People don't have to listen to it. They don't have to read it, don't have to watch it. But gee, it's been mm. an interesting journey for us and, and, and we're all healthier for it. Yeah. And, and the best place to find you, obviously on YouTube, I know you have nofructose.com. Um, anywhere else? Well, Belinda's works on isupportgary.com. I support Gary. She's got a new website coming called belindafetke.com, uh, which is her research. Oh. Um, but um, I'm tweeting, we're both tweeting away, but our, the, the talks which have got more information on them are, are on YouTube before that gets taken down by you know, darker forces. We yeah. didn't even go there today. So, oh, I know. I'll have to get, maybe I'll have your wife on. I would love that. If she get, does she do this or are you the spokesperson? No, no, no. She, um, she's uh, much nicer than me. So <laughs> I think are she's, you, uh, yeah, she's got quite a bit of work coming up her way. Okay. Just been, no, she's I, been published. There's a great book just been published by Jane Buxton. What's in just it? released a, a few weeks ago called The Plant-Based Con. Oh, I thought I saw you. Um, yeah, I, I was looking that up because I thought that you posted something about that. Oh, right, well, Belinda's helped write a couple of chapters in that with Jane. Okay. Um, and uh, the fact that it's created controversy means it's probably on the mark. Yeah, exactly. You never gave me your prediction. Who's your pick to win the Open? Well, one of those things about a bit like horse racing and, um, and golf tournaments, um, I don't, I don't make yep. bets because I can only lose. Chances <laughs> are I'm going to lose. There, you are. I'll say an Australian. Okay, there you are. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Okay, so you could have a maybe. I think Jason Day's playing or Mark Leishman. Um, okay, we'll go with but, that. But but I, it's one. Uh, it's one group that we haven't gotten into to have a chat towards about low carb keto. It's golfers. I, I hear that there are some players mucking around with it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, nowadays, these guys, it, it's so competitive these days, you know, and just to have a little bit of an edge when you're performing, if you could, you know, being in ketosis gives you that edge and lets you get into like a flow on the golf course. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure it's being observed. I had actually Scott Stallings on. He's a, been on the PJ tour for mm -hmm. a while. And, um, we didn't quite talk about like that, but we did talk a lot about health and he, he was one at one point fairly overweight and, um, not going down a good path. And 
has gotten his body back. And, um, but yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's an interesting, um, I mean, we, we know that those athletes who are doing this are having less injuries. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, just losing my voice after a while. Here's when you actually look at the damaged cartilage in a joint or the damaged tendons around joints, you find the end products of glucose metabolism, mm. the glycation products of the, the um, you don't find the byproducts of protein or fat metabolism. Yeah, and, you, yeah. and the, 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 so the, the, the root cause of tendon and cartilage damage is byproducts of carbohydrate metabolism. Hmm. So it's, it's fascinating. So therefore, if we can, um, again, lots of anecdotal stories, that's just got to be drawn into more and more data over time. But not, not a lot of money for research on this because nobody's making any money out of it. Right. That's what I say about fasting. <laughs> yeah, where's the money? Where's the yeah. money in that? Yeah, right. Well, this was great, Doctor Fetke. Thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you, and um, yeah, dropping all this great knowledge on us. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for your time, Brian. Okay, you have a good afternoon. I'm going to uh, have a good day. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.